today, I wanted to talk about the very challenging and difficult subject of the wrath of God. And uh, to do that, I want to read one more passage to us uh, beside what we started with. I want to read to you from Revelation, but going back to chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, and it says this, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So the wrath of God, this is one of those very challenging subjects that the Bible deals with. And so I thought it was important that we take some time and and look at it uh, very specifically. As we've been going through Revelation, several manifestations of the wrath of God have been seen through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and finally, uh, here in the 16th chapter, the seven bowls. And uh, in each one, beginning with the seals, then to the trumpets, then to the bowls, you have the, the totality of God's wrath that's going to be poured out uh, at this period of time. And this will be uh, the culmination of history as we know it. And in the seven bowls that are described here in Revelation 16, we are told that in them, the wrath of God is complete. So when we think about this subject of the wrath of God, uh, I suppose that there is nothing about the Christian message that is more objected to than this doctrine of the wrath of God against sin. Uh, this is the thing that you, you hear people all the time today uh, talking about. Well, I just cannot believe in a God who would judge uh, people. Um, you know, today we have a much louder uh, atheistic voice that is uh, reverberating in, in the culture. Uh, atheism, of course, has always been around. There have always been atheists. And, uh, but, you know, they, atheism has been popularized uh, in our time. Uh, recently, you have a number of men who have kind of stepped up and they're speaking very uh, loud about uh, the virtues of atheism and they've written some best-selling books. And, and of course, that stuff gets disseminated all throughout the culture. So we're hearing more and more conversation in the culture today about uh, the things that atheists think are you know, the real key elements in their arguments against the existence of God. And right at the top of the list is this whole issue of uh, God's wrath or judgment. And, you know, you read the literature or you listen to some of them uh, in debate or whatever, and you will see that they not only mock and scoff at the idea, uh, but they are actually outraged that anyone would even suggest that there is a God who judges people. That's kind of just where uh, we're at in the culture in general. But you don't even have to go out into the culture to find it. You can find the same sentiments in certain segments of the church. Within the church, and when I say the church, I'm talking about the, the larger uh, umbrella of what people uh, perceive to be Christianity. 
as you look under there, that larger umbrella, you will find that there are many in the church who are opposed to this idea that God will judge people. Uh, these are the theologically liberal minds uh, within the church. And they, they do their best to explain away what the Bible seems to be clearly saying. The Bible seems to be clearly saying that God is going to judge the world at a certain point, but they uh, seek to assure us that that's not uh, really what it means. Uh, God is, is not going to do any such thing. Uh, they even go so far as to say that uh, the God that we find in the Old Testament is, uh, like they, they've even used the term like a bloodthirsty tribal God uh, who wasn't really a, a true God. And they contrast the Old Testament God with Jesus in the New Testament. They say, well, Jesus came and he taught us, he just taught us that love is the, the superior thing. And as long as we love, that's all that really matters. And there, there's no judgment that's coming at all, they would say. And they would even go so far as to say that the idea that uh, there, there's a God who's going to judge uh, was, was brought into Christianity uh, from the outside. Uh, Jesus didn't teach this, they say. Uh, they actually attribute this idea to Paul. They say, well, you know, it was Paul. Until Paul came along, everybody understood that the message of Jesus was just love each other and get along and do your best and it's all gonna be good. Then Paul comes along, they say, and he brought in uh, from his rabbinic background, he brought on in all of these superstitions about the, this idea that, like you have to have blood uh, shed for the forgiveness of sins and without uh, that atonement, there's gonna be a judgment, there's gonna be a wrath. So what they try to do is they try to pit Jesus against Paul. And all of this happens within the context of, like I said, the larger umbrella of Christianity. Oftentimes, if it's, um, you know, maybe a, uh, an article in a, in a news periodical, um, or it might be, you know, something that you would see uh, in, a, in a newscast, you know, occasionally they'll have a, um, a, a discussion about these kinds of things. And they'll bring in a, a theologian, a Christian theologian, and he'll be in full agreement that the idea that the wrath of God is completely absurd and there's no way that that's a reality. And, you know, this is all Paul messing it up and, uh, you know, Jesus didn't believe this or teach this. And, and we, we just hold on to what Jesus said. So this is the question. Were Jesus and Paul in disagreement over this subject? Uh, did Paul borrow all of this stuff and, and bring it in and impose it on uh, the beautiful, loving message of Jesus. Well, let's just take a minute and look at a few of the things that Jesus himself said. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, Jesus spoke about judgment. Jesus spoke about wrath. And it's inescapable that he did this. It's right there in the pages of the New Testament. But what so often happens is people, uh, they're gonna be selective. They're gonna pick out the things that they like that Jesus said and say, well, this is what Jesus said. And the things that they don't like that he uh, apparently said, they're gonna say, well, Jesus didn't really say that. That was just put into his mouth by his disciples. So we believe that Jesus said it all. 
He, of course, talked about the love of God, the grace of God, but he also talked about the other side of the coin, the reality of judgment. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is speaking. This is what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations shall be gathered before him, and he shall say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Those are the words of Jesus. In Mark's gospel, the ninth chapter, Jesus said this, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is better to live life maimed than to have your whole body cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. In probably the most famous passage in the New Testament, John chapter 3, 316 specifically, even there, Jesus warns about judgment. Listen to what he said. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now listen to this. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already. Jesus talks about eternal punishment that wasn't originally intended for man, for the devil and his angels, but he says that there will be men that experience it. Jesus talks about this being such a severe reality that whatever's causing you to sin, if it's your, your hand or your foot or your eye, you'd be, you'd be better off to live without it than to be cast into the hellfire. And then here in John 3, he talks about condemnation. So clearly the liberals have got it wrong. But yet, on the other hand, it's not to say that the doctrine of the wrath of God isn't a difficult doctrine. You know, honestly, if you've never been troubled by this idea of God's judgment, his wrath, if you've never been troubled by the idea that there's such a thing as eternal punishment, if you've never been troubled by it, you've never really thought about it. Because when you think about it, it is troubling. It really is. So we can't uh, just, you know, glibly dismiss those who are troubled by it. We have to face it head on and realize, yes, this is indeed a troubling doctrine. It is troubling because it goes against the grain of our fallen nature. And I think, honestly, if left to our own reason, uh, we would no doubt want to rid ourselves of that idea. But you see, this is why God gave us a Bible. He gave us a Bible to tell us things that we need to know that we wouldn't conclude on our own things that we would naturally want to dismiss. He had them written down in plain words so we could know that whatever we feel about the issue, it doesn't really matter. It's what God has said in his word. And so he said clearly in his word that as difficult as it might be for us to accept, this is a reality. Now, those who reject the idea of the wrath of God I think generally speaking, they do so on or, or for two reasons. I think it comes down to this. Number one, we do not, as people generally, we do not uh, 
grasp the holiness of God. We, we just do not understand in some senses who God is and, and what his holiness is all about. You see, we tend to oftentimes think of God kind of like just a, a, a larger version of ourselves. But that's the wrong way to view God. And when we see God for who he really is, we realize that when the Bible says God is holy, what it's talking about, uh, amongst other things, is that God is of such moral purity that we could not survive a second in his presence. That, that's really what the holiness of God is all about. The Bible tells us that God dwells in the light that no man can approach. And the light there is not talking about physical light. It's really a reference to moral light. It's, it's a reference to the fact that God, God is holy. And God is so holy that to, to try to step into his presence would be immediate uh, destruction for me. I, I would be consumed instantly in the presence of God. We don't realize that about God. We often think of him with uh, uh, far less uh, understanding than we should about those things. So that's one problem. The second problem is we underestimate the sinfulness of man. We constantly underestimate the sinfulness of man, especially our own sinfulness most of the time. You know, we agree that we're sinners. We understand that, at least pe people who are Christians. But even as Christians, isn't it true that, you know, we don't see ourselves necessarily for how evil we really are. We think that, well, yeah, I'm a sinner, but, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. <laughs> but you know what? The truth of the matter is that you're every bit as bad. We're, we're all made of the same stuff. And the heart, the human heart, according to God, is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. It is incurably sick. It is so bad. The case is so bad, we can't even know how bad it is. That's what the Lord said. Who can know it? The answer is we can't know it ourselves. But I, the Lord, search the heart. You see, God's the one. Uh, he's the doctor. He's the one that's going to diagnose the problem, not us. And he tells us that our hearts are incurably wicked. Now, of course, there are a few people in, in history where we think that, well, yeah, that, I, I see that that person is like that. And I understand that, you know, there, there maybe could be a hell um, for people like that. But the vast majority of people, and, and ourselves included, you know, we're not that bad. We're not like that. But you know, again, it, the, the truth of the matter is we are. We are every bit as evil. Doesn't mean we carry out all the evil that we potentially could do. But you know, if the circumstances are just right, it will come out of our hearts. You know, oftentimes when I've been in counseling over the years and I've sat and I've listened, maybe, you know, maybe I'm speaking with a woman whose husband has left her for another woman or something like that. And, you know, that, if that's not bad enough, then she's telling me how, uh, you know, he refuses to pay child support and he's taking her to court and he's threatening that he's going to destroy her. And, you know, he's just doing everything in his power to um, destroy this person. As I hear that, I think, wow, you know, uh, Hitler had nothing on this guy. You know, he just, he just had more people to oppress. But, you know, th this person is doing the very same kind of a thing. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be in a, a divorce situation. I talk to people sometimes right within the home. 
You know, maybe it's a, it's a husband who's uh, oppressing the wife in such a way and, and manipulating and, and uh, even uh, abusing and tormenting, maybe not even physically abusing, but just that mental torment. They're deriving pleasure from making this person miserable. Sometimes it's a parent with a child or it's a child toward a parent, all different kinds of scenarios. But in, in these smaller contexts, we see the same kinds of things, but because they're done on such a, uh, a smaller level, we don't think of them as, as seriously as we think of uh, the activity of somebody like a Hitler or a Stalin or you know, someone like that. But it's really the same kind of thing. This is human nature. This is our condition. So you see, if, if I realize that, then I start to think, well, yeah, you know, there needs to be retribution. There needs to be judgment. There needs to be punishment. I mean, most people, most people, not everybody, but, but most people still today understand that there's such a thing as justice. Most people understand that, you know, when crimes are committed, uh, there needs to be uh, justice meted out. And just like we expect that from our uh, legal authorities, just like we expect when a criminal goes before a judge and has truly committed crimes, we expect the judge to uh, sentence that person to pay for that. Uh, we shouldn't stop there. We need to take the step further and recognize it's, it's the same thing on the higher level between God and man. But, but that is, I think, one of the, uh, the roots of the problem that we fail to realize God's holiness on the one hand, human sinfulness on the other. It's as J.I. Packer stated, we are modern people and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule, small thoughts of God. So we don't think of God properly. And so when we think of him being a judge, we, we somehow, uh, we were, we bristle at that. Uh, but if we understood who he was, we wouldn't. Now, having said all of that, and now as, as we move toward talking about this subject of wrath, because again, as we're going through Revelation, of course, that's the, the, the chapters that we've been in, that's really the theme of these chapters, the wrath of God that is coming upon the earth. But as we look more closely at the subject, the first thing that we need to understand when we think about it is that wrath is not, as some people mistakenly think, this is not God's first choice. We need to understand that about God. See, there's nothing in God in his very nature that necessitates that, that he uh, demonstrate wrath. You see, wrath is not a divine attribute. When you look at God, uh, God has various attributes. Uh, the Bible says that God is holy. That's an attribute of God. God is righteous. God is just. Um, God is gracious. He's merciful. All these things would be attributes of God. Wrath is not one of God's attributes. Wrath is the response of holiness and righteousness to evil. So you see, were there no evil, there would be no wrath in God. So it's important to understand that. Some uh, mistakenly think that, that wrath is part of God's nature. Therefore, he, he must show wrath. No, God is forced to show wrath because of evil. 
But wrath, which is the outworking of his righteous anger, is something that God is reluctant to do. He's reluctant to do it. And this is the first thing that we need to understand when we come to this conversation that we might end up having with people at work or our neighbors or family members. Um, We need to understand, first and foremost, you know, this isn't God's first choice. When God comes to a place of actually judging somebody, it's that every other option has been exhausted. That's the case. Because God is slow to anger. And that is stated over and over and over again. And it's stated mostly in the Old Testament, believe it or not. It's stated in the Old Testament. Some people say, oh man, the God of the Old Testament, he's just so wrathful. He's just punishing people all the time and judging everybody. You know, read the Old Testament again. That's not really what's happening. You find in in the Old Testament, some of the most amazing statements about God's mercy and his grace are found in the Old Testament. The reason why it seems like the Old Testament is so full of wrath is because we're reading a history that goes for 3,500 years, and it's a history with people who are in rebellion to God for the most part, so much of the, the history is taken up with God trying to bring the people to their senses so they don't have to go under judgment. But let's not mistakenly think what some people say, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. It's not true. Let me just show you from uh, the Old Testament itself that God is a God who is merciful and gracious. Nehemiah 9.17, Nehemiah is praying to God, and this is what he says. He says, but you are a God ready to pardon, gracious, merciful, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Joel 2.13, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And now this one is the most amazing to me because this is found in Jonah, chapter four, verse two. Many of us know who Jonah is, right? He's the guy that got swallowed by the fish. Listen to what Jonah says. Jonah says, he's speaking to God. He says, therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish For I know that you are gracious and merciful. You're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. What is this about? What is the context of this? Jonah is saying to God, the reason why I refused to go to Nineveh and I got on that ship is because I knew that there was a chance that you would forgive the Ninevites because you're gracious and you're merciful and I didn't want you to forgive them. I wanted you to destroy them. That's, that's Jonah's explanation for why he ran away from God. Because I know you're gracious and merciful and I know that I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna tell them to repent and you're gonna, you're gonna forgive them. You're not gonna wipe them out. Jonah knew Even though his own heart was set on judgment toward the Ninevites, he knew that that was not the case with God. God is slow to anger. So the tribulation period that we're reading about as we're going through these portions of Revelation here, 
Listen, the tribulation is the culmination of ages and ages of man's revolt and rebellion against God and the refusal to repent. You see, we have to see it in the context. So all of this judgment that we're reading about, it's when every other option has been exhausted. This is where we come to. Now, I had the most amazing illustration of this come to me just over the past couple of days. You know, throughout the week, I, I, you know, thinking about the message and I'm kind of, you know, going over in my mind different things that I want to put down as we come to this time to to look at the issue. Uh, I picked up a book a couple of days ago. And as I was reading through the book, I did not expect to find such an amazing illustration of the very point that I'm making here, but I did indeed find it. I picked up a book a couple of days ago. The book is called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Now, for some of you, uh, that name means nothing. For others, you would know that Christopher Hitchens was, until his death in 2011, he was the world's most notorious atheist. He was the, the loudest, the most vocal, and in some senses, um, maybe the most obnoxious of what, what are called the new atheist. In 2007, uh, Christopher wrote a book called God is Not Great. And just like Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, it became a bestseller. And as a result of writing that book, he decided that he wanted to go out and he wanted to take on Christians publicly, head on in debate, and he wanted to show everybody uh, how flimsy the argument for Christianity is. And uh, so he, he sought opponents. And in the course of doing this, there was a man who uh, obliged him of his desire, a man named Larry Taunton. And Larry uh, has a, an organization called uh, the Fixed Point Foundation. And Larry began to set up debates between Christopher Hitchens and um, leading Christian who would speak on behalf of the faith. Um, and so these debates ensued. And Hitchens found, to his surprise, in the course of these debates, two things. Number one, the Christians weren't as dumb as they, he thought they were. And number two, they were much nicer than he expected them to be. And so in the course of all of this, uh, he became actually quite close friends with a few solid Christian men. And Larry Taunton, who is the author of this book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, uh, this book is the account of Larry's personal friendship with Christopher. And in the book, here, here's the amazing thing. Now, from the outside observation, even from, from Christians, Christopher was diagnosed with cancer in 2010. And when that announcement was made public, many Christians said, and understandably, aha, God is finally dealing with this guy. God is showing Christopher who's really in charge. This is God's judgment on Christopher's life. Many Christians said that and thought that. And understandably, because this guy 
was a professional blasphemer. He made his fortune off of going around the world and blaspheming God. That's what he did. But you know, there's another side to the story. And here's the amazing thing. Prior to his diagnosis of cancer, he had already developed friendships with some of these Christians. He was already intrigued and somewhat impressed with what he saw in them. After his cancer diagnosis, he began to more personally inquire. And the book here, like I said, is, is the story of his relationship with Larry and two, uh, specifically two trips that they took together privately. And during those trips, among other uh, encounters and relations, during those trips specifically, they studied the gospel of John together. So here's the amazing thing to me, just like we're talking about. God is slow to anger. He's plenteous in mercy. He waits. He puts up with so many things uh, where we would think that uh, God should have struck this guy dead ages ago. God is not only not striking him dead, but God is extending, if you will, an olive branch to him. And that's really what's happening during these few last few years of Hitchens' life, and particularly during the last 16 months of his life. God is extending uh, an olive branch to him through this friendship and this relationship with Larry Taunton. And I, I wanted to read you just one little uh, portion of the book here. And this is right at, at the very end of the story. But it's, it's quite powerful. It's very moving. So Larry's describing they were, uh, they had already previously gone through the Shenandoah Valley. And during that time, they had studied John's gospel together. This is some months later. This is a few months before Hitchens died. They were together once again. They had just debated one another in Billings, Montana. And the following day, they were uh, into Wyoming and there in Yellowstone uh, National Park. And here's uh, the scene as Larry describes it. He says, the skies are clear. The autumn leaves are translucent in the early afternoon sun, and the road ahead of us is open. As we crest one of these old rolling mountains, we see unfolding before us a valley of sublime beauty. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, reaching the 25th and 26th verses. His face lights up with recognition. He stops. I know this one too he says. I didn't recall its connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a great verse, I add, sensing we, had, we have reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, he says. And then, taking his reading glasses off, he turns to me and asks, do you believest thou this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do, but you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believest thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As if searching for a clever repost, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency. I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. Now, Larry goes on and he says this. At the end of his life, Christopher's search had brought him willingly, if secretly, to the altar. Precisely what he did there, no one knows. Indeed, no one can know. 
As Christians and atheists vied for his soul, the greatest struggle was within Christopher himself. With his wits undimmed, one wonders what prayers Christopher might have sent up as he approached his inevitable end. If he died an atheist, the epitaph reads with a gloomy finality, Christopher Hitchens, 1949 through 2011. This is how some would have it. But I happen to know that Jesus' words in John 11, 25 and 26 reverberated in his mind, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? It's fascinating. It's astounding. And to me, the amazing thing, and as Larry is very... Uh, clear on this. He is not, he did not write this book saying that Christopher Hitchens became a Christian. He writes this book saying that Christopher Hitchens was a man who was searching. Christopher Hitchens sought out fellowship or friendship with these Christian men, and he was willing to engage with them in conversation about the gospel. He retained publicly his persona as the world's most notorious atheist but as, as Taunton says from the beginning of the book to the end, uh, Christopher kept two sets of books. There were those public books and there were those private books. And he personally, as a friend, holds out hope that in that last few moments that Christopher understanding what was at stake and, and you know, what the truth was about Jesus, that, that he perhaps did humble himself before him. But of course, we will never know. But my point is this. My point is God, who many of us would have thought would have just sent a bolt of lightning to rid himself of this pesky human who went around the world blaspheming him, far from doing that, was extending an olive branch to him even to his dying day. So it's, it's an amazing thing. But it, like I said, it illustrates the point that I'm making here. God is slow to anger. God is not looking to judge people. God is looking for the opposite. And whenever this topic comes up, we need to understand this because it's gonna come up because this is, this is in our culture today, this is what people are talking about when it comes to God. So often, this is the first thing people say, I'd never believe in a God who's going to send somebody to hell. So we have to understand the truth about the wrath of God. Truth number one, it's not his first desire. It is not really his desire at all. His desire is that none perish, all come to repentance. But is there a wrath of God that will be poured out? Absolutely, there is. And history shows us that God has already on occasion poured out his wrath and revelation tells us that he will do it again. Let me give you just a few quick uh, historical examples. Uh, The most obvious and the first one would be the flood in the time of Noah. That was God pouring out his wrath upon a rebellious, wicked world. We read there in Genesis chapter six that the earth had become filled with violence and corruption and the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. And so God obliterated all of humanity with the exception of one family. 
that was the first demonstration of God's wrath. But the interesting thing there is that, um, do you know there's 1,800 years between creation and the flood? So there's this long period of time where God is suffering uh, and, and uh, long with the, the sin and the wickedness of man. When God instructs Noah to build the ark, you know what he says Noah uh, to Noah? He says, I- I'm going to give 120 years. So 120 years between the time of the instruction to build and the completion of the ark in which people could have repented. Nobody did. So that's one. Fast forward. The flood comes. Humanity is destroyed with the exception of Noah. Him and his family come forth. The earth begins to be repopulated. Uh, let's, let's fast forward to Egypt, uh, Israel. God has chosen Abraham. His descendants have gone into Egypt. They're there uh, being oppressed by the Egyptians. God sends Moses. And there is a judgment upon Egypt and Pharaoh. But when you read the story, you have to remember this. God gives Pharaoh 10 opportunities to repent before he finally brings his, his a complete judgment upon Egypt. And so from there, fast forward, we come to um, the land of Canaan, the Canaanites. Uh, The Israelites are are going to go and inherit this land. And Joshua and the Israelites are going to be God's instrument of judgment to wipe out the Canaanites. Just, Just as the flood was God's instrument in the days of Noah, so Joshua and the Israelites are his instrument in the in those days. And they come into Canaan and they Uh, wipe out the Canaanites. But if you go back in Genesis, you find that God told Abraham that this would happen. And there God said that there would be a 400-year window in which he would give the Canaanites an opportunity to repent. After 400 years, they did not do it. Judgment finally came. And so as we go through, we come to Israel. They come into the land. They briefly obey God. Then they rebel against him. They break all of his commandments uh, continually. They worship the idols. They do everything God told them not to do. And God finally judges them, but not without numerous warnings and numerous calls to repentance. And so the northern kingdom is led into captivity by the Assyrians. And then the same thing happens to the southern kingdom of Judah. But again, not without warnings, not without opportunities to repent. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and he destroys Jerusalem. And then God allows the people to go back into the land. Then Jesus comes and he's the Messiah and he offers them salvation and they reject it. And then in 70 AD, the Romans come. But my point is this, God gives all of this time for repentance because that's what he really wants. So that's judgment in the past. Is there judgment in the present? I don't know that we could look at any particular situation anywhere in the world today and say that is, with absolute certainty, that is a judgment of God upon that situation. I don't think we can do that. Even with somebody like Hitchens, where people thought that's a judgment of God, that cancer is a judgment of God upon him. Well, why is is it only upon him? There are other atheists. There are other atheists who are just as vocal. So we have to be careful when there are certain things that happen in our world where there's catastrophes that take place and so forth. Christians sometimes are really quick to jump in and say, hey, that's, that's a judgment of God upon that person or upon that place. I don't think we can know that because personally, I think that 
uh, the days of God's direct judgment, like in the flood, like in Egypt, like with the Canaanites, and the direct judgment that will come in the tribulation, that is not what we're experiencing today. God's judgment today is more indirect. According to Paul in Romans chapter one, the way God judges currently is that he allows men to live as they will and then to reap the consequences of their choices. God gives them up. But there is a future judgment and that's what Revelation 16 is about. Isaiah 13, let me read this to you from Isaiah 13. This is Isaiah's description of what we read in Revelation 16 without the details that we get in Revelation 16. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt and they will be afraid. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both uh, wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the tyrants. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. Therefore, I will shake heaven, the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. That is Isaiah's description. God speaking through Isaiah. That is his description of Revelation 16, the culmination of the wrath that is yet to come in the future. So God has judged in history. God will judge in the future. God does not want to judge. That's not his first choice. His first choice is to forgive. He's slow to anger. He patiently waits, but there's a point where he has no other option. But there's one other place where God's wrath was manifested that we must consider before we close. And the other place where God's wrath was manifested, this is where we see most clearly God's wrath demonstrated. And believe it or not, it's in the cross. The cross of Jesus is the greatest demonstration of God's wrath that there is. Have you ever wondered why Christ was so brutally treated and why he was crucified and suffered so cruelly. I mean, you know, the prophecy, of course, is that uh, Jesus, the Messiah is going to come into the world. He's going to die for sin. His blood has to be shed. All of that is stated in the prophecies. But surely there was a more humane way that it could have been done. But if we consider that it was the wrath of God that Jesus was experiencing, it's then that we understand why he suffered the way he did. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the reality is he was being punished in the place of sinners. Man's only hope of escaping the wrath of God is to come to the cross and have his sins forgiven. The cross speaks, listen, the cross speaks of the love of God and the wrath of God simultaneously. That's the message of the cross. It's both a message of God's love and it is a message of God's wrath. It is a declaration of his love to those who repent and receive his mercy. It is a warning of his wrath against sin to those who refuse. Now here's the thing that I want to bring home. And again, I want to draw your attention back to Revelation 16. 
the wrath of God that is poured out in the seals, the trumpets, and here in Revelation 16, the bull judgments actually should never have to take place because all those sins were punished when Jesus died on the cross. You see, this is the the tragic irony. These things that we're reading about in Revelation, they shouldn't even have to take place. And the reason they do have to take place is because man rejects the pardon that God offers. And in rejecting the pardon, the only other alternative is judgment. Let's just say there was a a criminal who was genuinely a criminal. And let's say that the governor or the president decided to pardon them. Let's just say they were on death row. Let's say they were were up for uh, execution. And the, the president, the governor, whoever it might be, they, they pardon the person. And so the warden, the authorities from the prison, they come and they tell them, you know, you're, uh, you're, uh, you've been pardoned. Uh, you're free to go. And the person says, well, you know, I don't care. I don't want to be pardoned. I'm, I'm just fine just the way I am, you know. And, and I, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm not going to receive the pardon. Okay, well, what are we going to do? Well, if they don't receive the pardon, they're obviously going to, go through with the, the sentence, the execution. And, and in a sense, that's exactly what's happened with the human race. We're all guilty, but God punished those sins in Jesus. And now he offers to all humanity a pardon. But for those who say, well, I don't want the pardon. I don't need the pardon. I don't care about the pardon. I'm not interested. What else can God do? So you see, when we think of God's wrath, we need to understand that it's the refusal to repent of sin that brings about the seals and the trumpets and the bulls and ultimately hell. You see, here's the truth. Anyone who ends up in hell, and there's a real hell, Jesus said that there was, but remember, he said it wasn't prepared with man in mind. It was made for the devil and his angels, but men will be there. But anyone who ends up there will have, in a sense, put themselves there. That's the truth of the matter. You know, on the one hand, you can say God does not uh, send people to hell. They send themselves. On the other hand, of course, you could say that God does send them there as well. But he sends them there because that's the choice that they have made. And we have to keep that in mind. Now, Paul says to those who have put their faith in Christ, God has not appointed us to wrath. But you know, you could, you could expand that and you could in a sense say to the whole world, God has not appointed the world to wrath. Jesus said, as we read there in John three sixteen and 17 and 18, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But that's the only way to be saved is through him. And if one is to reject that offer of pardon, that gift of salvation, then there is nothing left but to meet God in that wrath that he reluctantly but certainly will pour out. And so let's understand that for our own uh, spiritual well-being. Let's understand it so we might give a response to people who challenge with the idea that there could be such a thing as a God of judgment. And let's remember that God's heart 
is first and foremost to forgive. And let's also remember from the lessons of history and the very recent history of Christopher Hitchens, God is looking to pardon sinners. That's what he's looking to do. And you know, quite honestly, as I read that book over the past couple days, I thought, you know, I myself have been very swift at times to um, want to call down fire and brimstone on people. I myself at times have, have thought those very things, you know, that this person is, you know, they should be judged. And it just, it just kind of gave me a check to be careful about that. Because the very person that we might be thinking that God wants to zap and obliterate could be the very person that God is looking to send believers into their life to appeal to them maybe one last time to respond to his grace. That's what happened with Hitchens. And I think that's what is possible and probable for many. So let's not forget that ourselves. Lord, we thank you that you are, Lord, a God of mercy and grace. Lord, that you are slow to anger. Lord, we thank you that you are not one who is swift to judge. Lord, sometimes we want you to judge swiftly, but that's because we want you to judge somebody else. When it comes to ourselves, Lord, we so want you to be patient. And thank you that you are. Help us to just understand, Lord, that your nature, your heart, wrath is not naturally there. It is only there because of persistent evil. Thank you, Jesus, that you died and bore the wrath of God so that we could be pardoned and set free. And Lord, as we think about the future and we know that these things are true, that there will be seals and there will be trumpets and there will be bowls of wrath that are poured out. Lord, we just think of how sad it is that it didn't have to be this way. And Lord, as history moves in that direction, may you continue to extend mercy. And may we be instruments of that mercy to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.